Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. Now, John Maynard Keynes, the godfather of modern economics, once said, the difficulty lies not so much in developing new ideas as in escaping from old ones. Well, if Keynes was alive today, I'm sure he would have a thing or two to say about current central banking policies. And my guest this week is a scholar of Keynes. He was an economist at the Bank of England in the late 90s, both before and after its independence. His name is Eric Britton, and he, together with his friends from the bank, now work for Fathom Consulting, a consultancy firm which focuses on macroeconomics, financial markets, and geopolitics. Fathom brings, and I quote, the analytical rigor of the bank into the private sector, creating a consultancy with the brain power to tackle complex and intractable problems fiercely independent and free from the traditional hierarchical culture of a bank. Now do check out their website at fathom-consulting.com, especially the About Us page, which details their big calls over the last 20 odd years. Now in this episode, Eric and I have a wide ranging discussion on what life was like at the bank in the 1990s, both pre and post operational independence, the danger of merging fiscal and monetary policies, and the disinflationary effects of China. Now, I wanted to split this podcast into two, but I was overruled by our producer, Laura. So in the first 30 minutes, Eric and I identify the macroeconomic problems facing the world at the moment. And in the second 30 minutes, Eric shares with us his solutions to said problems. Now, Eric's a legend. This is a long one, but it's a good one. This is the Why Invest podcast. Eric Britton, welcome to the podcast. Eric, let's start with your background. Where did you grow up? Where did you study? And how did you start your career? I grew up in deepest, darkest Essex in Colchester, Essex boy, born and bred, and uh, lived there, same house until I was 18. Colchester, not a huge town. Not an enormous amount going on. I was pretty keen to leave by the time I went off to university. And I went to university in Oxford, uh, studied there for three years, did PPE along with uh, the bulk of the cabinet. Now, Didn't go into the cabinet. Didn't go into the cabinet. And uh, graduated from there and then went to work for a very small consultancy that did micro forecasting, that kind of thing. Actually, the E part of the PPE that I studied, I dropped after year one. Uh, I was really most interested in philosophy. That was what I, I really went to university to study and still am. But the, the sad fact about philosophy is there's nobody really wants to pay you for that <laughs> stuff. <laughs> People do pay for the E part. They do pay for the E part. And perhaps they don't pay enough for the it, second PPE. Indeed, yes. Yeah. I would say that's, that's fair. Um, <laughs> Anyway, that was the bit that interested me, and I dropped the E after after the first year, but then went into an area of econ uh, mm -hmm. after university, micro-forecasting, really. And the story there was we were takers of the consensus forecasts or forecasts produced by institutions like the IMF or Goldman Sachs in those days and still. And we would explain to our clients that we don't have much to say about the macro conjuncture. What we do is take that as given by the consensus and then assess what this means for your business, whether that be, I don't know, potter to mice and boilers, for example. I knew more about that brand of boilers than any sane human thought. <laughs> uh, thinking about the market size of it, the trends in the market, etc. 
given a certain outlook for the macro side. This was in the late 1980s, in the run-up to the recession of Mm -hmm. the early 1990s. And during that recession, a lot of our clients in that business had a very hard time, predictably, Mm -hmm. had you known the recession was coming. Of course, the consensus, the IMF, the rest of them did not predict a recession. In fact, in the history of recessions, there's not one official forecaster or consensus forecaster that has ever correctly predicted a recession until you're in it. They provide no information about that type of thing. And our clients were pretty angry with us at that time and would say things to us like, why didn't you tell us this was coming? Why didn't you warn us that there's a recession coming? And we said, well, we told you at the outset, this isn't our job. Our job is to take as given the macro picture and uh, tell you what that picture means for your business. And they sort of went off harumphing to themselves. And we thought, well, that's okay. It's not great. And the reason it's not great was because actually in the business itself, at that time, we were battening down the hatches. We were preparing for a storm. It's just we weren't telling our clients about that because we didn't perceive that as our role. And I, at that time, thought that most unsatisfactory and that we've got to try and do better than that. So I thought, what I need to do is macro, not just the micro side of it, but the macro side too. So I studied for a master's. I did that at Birkbeck in London while I was working too. And that was really good. While you were working at the Bank of England. Yeah, so the great thing about Birkbeck, not at the Bank of England, at this consultancy. And uh, the great thing about Birkbeck is you can study for master's or whatever in the evening. And so it's consistent with working either part-time or full-time. It's extremely hard work, I should say, because you just have no time. But uh, it's good fun too, and the teaching was good. And I did that, got my master's, and then I applied for the bank and got a job at the Bank of England. The Bank of England, yeah. In the Monetary Analysis Division there. This was in 95, and uh, I worked there for five years through the transition from the Ken and Eddie show as it was when I arrived, Eddie George being the governor at the time, to full operational independence of monetary policy. And um, that was a super interesting period mm-hmm. to be there. It happened in 1997. 97 with the Labour government of, of May 97, mm-hmm. then pretty much the first thing they introduced. And with no notice, by the way, that was a very high-kept secret at the bank. How does that change the operations? Like, massively. Yeah. It changed it massively. So this was... Mervyn King was the chief economist for the while that I was there and then became governor later. And uh, while he was chief economist, his whole aim and express aim was to achieve operational independence of monetary policy for the Bank of England. And he achieved that aim along with the Labour government of 97. And it was regarded as a triumph by him and by lots of other people too. And in many ways, I I think it was. And the transition went from advising Eddie George in his conversations with Ken Clark that would happen monthly and more importantly, quarterly. And Ken Clark would make the decision on interest rates, but uh, both parties would come armed with reams of information that had been supplied to them by Mm -hmm. either the Treasury on Ken Clark's part or the Bank of England on Eddie George's part, including forecasts for the economy. And that's the area that I was involved in Mm -hmm. at the bank. And... uh, those were very strange and sometimes slightly farcical conversations. In what sense? What were the conversations about? So uh, one of the key factors in thinking about the forecast for the UK inflation, for example, which is what I've spent a lot of my time doing at the Bank of England, was what's going to happen to interest rates in future? <laughs> so we can make our own judgments in the Bank of England about that, but we don't know at the bank at that time because that decision was up to Ken Clark. The Treasury, however, would have their own view of what was going to happen to interest rates. They'd have that in, embedded in their forecast. And the um, protocol was that ahead of the Ken and Eddie show each month, particularly quarter, we would exchange 
forecast. So the Bank of England would give its forecast to the Treasury and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And the first thing we would do at the bank is leaf through the Treasury forecast to get to the page which had the interest rate mm-hmm. outlook to see, okay, is this even vaguely consistent with what we're assuming about the path for demand, the path for inflation, etc. in our own forecast? And if yes, brief the governor. If no, brief the governor harder and, 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 and before he goes into that discussion. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was such sensitive information and market-moving information mm-hmm. if you were apprised of it before time. So it was kept very firmly under wraps. And quite often, you'd have to go physically and pick up the forecast document from the Treasury. Someone would be sent around from the bank to do that, like a hundred sides mm-hmm. of printed tables and so on. And you'd have to leaf through those tables on your return to get to the interest rate one. And quite often the interest rate one wasn't there. <laughs> because the Treasury did not want the bank finding that information out ahead of the, the Canadian. Anyway, so there's that sort of always element of farce involved in it. Yeah. And uh, what you're trying to achieve anyway was slightly unclear. Give information to the Treasury, to the Chancellor to make his decision. How much is he going to take that on? Mm-hmm. Depends on how persuasive you are, right? And how good the relationship is and all of that stuff. So those two, both Ken and Eddie, were politicians, really. And then it transitioned to operational independence and the, the monetary policy committee and the external members and the more formal arrangements there and mm-hmm. uh, uh, votes and so on. And uh, one of the things that the tools that they deployed, which I'm going to pat myself on the back for now, uh, was the fan chart um, that they've used ever since. I did that. that That's I, you. I invented that device mm-hmm. when I was there and Mervyn King asked, offered a bottle of champagne to anybody in the <laughs> bank who could come up with a visual appealing way of uh, conveying the probability distribution of the forecast and uh, and I won that bottle of champagne for that and it's been in use ever since and that was the part of the again there's an element of not quite fast but of, of a sleight of hand involved in this when the brief to put this together was a brief to transparently convey the range of uncertainty that was in the minds of policymakers about the outlook for interest rates, the outlook for inflation, etc. But actually how it was used <laughs> was not all that transparent. It was much more about can the committee, all nine members of the committee, live with this range of outcomes? And how wide does it have to be to accommodate to, for them to say, all right, I'm, I'm happy with that. My own view is embedded in there somewhere, which isn't really the same idea that was behind the fan chart in the first place. But anyway, that's how it was subsequently used. I was there for five years and super interesting years they were. And then I left in 2000 and went to join a company called Oxford Economics, where I worked as a director for eight years, Mm -hmm. three of which in the US. Uh, I was in Philadelphia, their Philadelphia office there for three years, which was great fun. And they're a great company. And I did a a lot of work with them. And then finally, in uh, 2007, the pool to join a fledgling company that had been started by a group of people who met at the Bank of England became too great to resist. And that company was Fathom. So let's let's introduce yep. Fathom. And what's the sort of raison d'etre? And what perhaps, you know, going back to 2007, what was the sort of value proposition back then? And perhaps we can go on to work out how that value proposition might have changed. So Fathom actually started in 2003. Um, I joined in 2007. And the raison d'etre was um, going back to the bank. When we had all worked in the bank together, the four founding members of Fathom, um, which is myself, Danny Gabai, uh, Shamik Dar, and Andrew Clare, uh, we all worked at the bank together. 
And at that time in the bank, we worked on the monetary analysis side with Mervyn and so on. And the other side of the bank was the financial stability side, which was responsible for looking after financial risks, risks in the banking sector, that kind of thing. And those two sides of the bank rarely met. <laughs> and when they did meet, uh, they spoke different languages and implicitly distrusted each other. And uh, there was very little communication between us at all. That seems strange. Extremely strange. It seemed extremely strange to me, to us, to the founders of Fathom, that that would have been the case. And more than that, the prevailing wisdom, if you can call it that, the received wisdom at that time was the efficient markets hypothesis, subsequently exploded by the financial crisis of 0809, mm -hmm. I would say, if it hadn't been before. Efficient market <laughs> hypothesis being markets are perfectly efficient and all known information is reflected in the price. Correct. Yeah. And uh, if you think as an outsider to markets, whether you're going to try and trade in markets as an individual or whether you're a policymaker looking at how markets are behaving and thinking, I can understand something about how risks are evolving, forget it. The, that job has already been done by the extremely clever and well-paid market participants mm. whose job it is to think about that and nothing else. And all of that information is already captured in the set of market prices. If you think there's anything to say beyond that, you're wrong and uh, you're self-aggrandizing. You're thinking you see something that all of these market participants don't. That was the sort of school of thought that prevailed at the bank at the time. And it meant that when you're making setting interest rate policy, you're thinking about the outlook for inflation and only that. Doesn't matter what's going on in financial markets, they will look after themselves if, mm -hmm. as long as we get the inflation outcome correct. And according to the constitution of the bank, you know, hit the target, mm -hmm. et cetera, then whatever happens to financial markets is not our problem for monetary policymakers. And at the time in the 2000s and before, while we were at the bank, that just seemed to us crazy. Mm -hmm. It seemed to all of the founding members of Fathom that that's just obviously not going to be true. Mm. There are clearly going to be financial risks building up in the financial system that are visible, notwithstanding the efficient markets hypothesis, or rather the efficient markets hypothesis is wrong. In the equilibrium, it's right, but that markets can run away with themselves for long periods of time, drive asset prices up, drive leverage ratios mm. up for long periods of time without any fundamental justification. Mm. It can go far from the fundamentals. And that seemed to us pretty clear back in the 90s mm. through the 2000s. And by the time Fathom was formed, that was the whole point of Fathom, was to mm. shout from the rooftops, boy, policymakers, there's something going on in financial markets you should be paying attention to. You should, it's not enough to just look at inflation. You should be thinking about the build-up of risk in the banking sector, for example. Systemic mm -hmm. yeah. So I suppose, that, I mean, your timing was, was pretty good in the sense that you joined in 2007. What then changed <laughs> after 2008? So 2007, Fathom was still a very small company. Mm -hmm. We had one large client that was a hedge fund called London Diversified fund management spin-off of uh, JP Morgan. And uh, we were doing a lot of work for them. It was very interesting stuff. There were a few other clients too, but they were the big one, the, the big source of revenues. And then uh, in 2008, obviously, the layman's moment happened. And um, uh, some of us were present at the, the hedge fund on the Friday before Lehman's. And um, We'd heard about it on the wires and, and all of that, and we bothered about it, writing stuff about it, and spoke the principles of the of the fund. I didn't, but my colleagues did, and saying, um, "Are you aware of, of what's happening with with Lehman's potential that Lehman's might go under over the weekend?" And uh, 
And they said, are we aware? Of course we're aware. This is what we do. You know, you, you economists are aware like weeks after mm-hmm. people in the markets are aware. And we've been on this for, for yonks. And, uh, okay, fine. Are you safe in the event that Lehman's goes under? And they were, yeah. So we don't have any business with Lehman's. None of our counterparties have any business with Lehman's. And none of their counterparties have any. We've gone to two tiers of all of our connections and we're as safe as any, any institution could, could be. And yet, uh, Lehman's <laughs> went pop and three or four months afterwards, so did this hedge fund because of Lehman's, because of a strand of connectivity that was sort of six tiers really? down and that unraveled and came back to bite them. They got into the margin calls and all that type of stuff. Yeah. And they lost like 95% of their assets in the space of a few months. And uh, like many other hedge funds mm-hmm. did at the same time, this was the, the great financial crisis. Mm-hmm unraveling in front of our face in the form of, well, our biggest client. Along with um, the funds, our source of revenue also went pop. Um, that was, I would say, a third to 40% of our revenue in that one client uh, that just disappeared overnight in uh, 2009. And uh, that was obviously a very difficult thing for a small company to, to cope with. And the net result of it after lots of wranglings and so on was that two of the partners left. Uh, to, to pursue other careers. And that left myself and uh, Danny Gabai as partners in the business mm-hmm. after that. So you picked yourself up, yep. dusted yourself off yep. post-financial crisis where, you know, there was an introduction of, of sort of murky counterparty risk yeah. and systemic risk, really. I mean, Correct. that's what it is, which is, I suppose you'd spent most of your career looking at. Thinking about. Thinking about and the, perhaps policy makers weren't thinking about. One of so those what, ironies. Yeah. What was then, so then how did you just dust yourself off and what was the new value proposition? And, so and how did you go out looking for clients? Part, part of the idea of, of recruiting me from Oxford Economics was that the in the analysis of Fathom circa 2007, we were at the peak of the global hedge fund boom. And yet our principal client was a hedge fund. So we perceived, we, my predecessors at Fathom perceived a risk there and thought the way around this is to diversify. And what they did in bringing me in was that my objective was to bring in other sources of revenue. So consultancy revenues from uh, government, from corporates, et cetera, uh, which is what I've done really ever since. That's That's been my forte through my... Uh, non-Bank of England career anyway, is, mm-hmm. is that that kind of area of work. And um, those revenues did come through and have continued to come through mm-hmm. subsequently. And that's what's kept the company alive, really, through the fluctuations in financial markets and so mm-hmm. on. Scrolling forward to now, we, uh, I would say about, mm, about a third of our business is financial market participants, about half of our business is government consultancy and the residual is other media companies and, and that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it turned out that that was a really wise decision on the part of the company. Mm-hmm. I'm not blowing my own trumpet, mm-hmm. but just the diversification, mm-hmm. speaking about myself particularly, but the diversification point at that time mm-hmm. was what kept the company afloat mm-hmm. uh, through those periods. Really, I suppose I want to focus maybe on the sort of almost BCAD uh, sort of environments before the financial crisis and after the financial crisis and how yeah. policymakers you know, assessed market risks, systemic yeah. market risks. Did you see a, a big step change? And were you involved in that step change? Yes, we did see a big step change. And I would say, to a degree, we were involved in it. Um, the obvious change, if you look at any 
time series chart, for example, interest rates, you'll see a step down mm-hmm. in, uh, in policy rates at the time of the financial crisis mm-hmm. and no subsequent recovery until the last few months, <laughs> uh, which we'll come to, no doubt. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but uh, for a period of, of 10, 15 years, rates mm-hmm. were nailed to the floor mm-hmm. post-financial crisis, not just at the short end, but also at the long end mm-hmm. by the contribution of other tools like unconventional monetary mm-hmm. policy um, quantitative easing, as it's known, mm-hmm. which is the practice of the um, central bank, mm-hmm. the, the printer of, of currency, printing currency, and using that currency mm-hmm. to buy government debt from the markets initially, mm-hmm. and later directly from the government, which is what's happened. I mean, let's focus on QE, because mm-hmm. I'm sure I remember mm-hmm. back in 2008, 2009, when we started we, the policymakers in the Western world, started to experiment with these unconventional monetary policy tools. Everyone in the world was saying, this is inflationary, this is going to be inflationary. And it kind of was, but it wasn't. It was in the sense that that inflation got stuck in the sort of financial markets, mm-hmm. property, equities, mm-hmm. bonds. Mm-hmm. You know, you had extraordinary inflation in, in those elements. But you didn't it didn't trickle down into the real economy. No. And I wonder why that is. And is that is that an, an enormous policy error? Uh, is it a policy error? So first of all, declare an interest. Uh, in February 2009, we at Fathom put together what we call a monetary policy forum that got Fathom presenting our view of the outlook for the economy and the four original external members of the Monetary Policy Committee coming along as panellists. And what we all collectively called for was unconventional monetary policy. And uh, and that was Feb 2009. And shortly afterwards, it was introduced, not just in the UK, but globally. I'm not saying we called that. <laughs> there are <so> many, many. <laughs> ah, so you're <laughs> there, there are many voices in yeah. this, but we were one of them. And um, was it a policy mistake? I think the best analogy I have for that is uh, when a, a, the patient has had a heart attack, you put them on an mm-hmm. operating table and you give them shots of adrenaline and defibrillation. And that's exactly right. You should do that. You should use every tool at your disposal at the moment that the patient is in that situation. It doesn't make sense to be doing that 10 years later. Mm. Well, to flog the metaphor, I mean, <clears throat> there's a danger that if you give the patient medicine, there's a danger that the patient gets addicted to the medicine. Correct. That's exactly right. And that's, you know, it's on every box of paracetamol. If symptoms <laughs> persist after four days, go see a doctor. There's something different going on, right? And that metaphor really applies throughout. You can push it almost as far as you like. Mm-hmm. In the long run, the drugs don't work. Mm-hmm. They just make you worse, yes. uh, to quote the verve, if I can remember. <laughs> and uh, that story, we were very convinced that at the time of the crisis, there was emergency measures were needed, but you can't continue to tell me it's an emergency for 10 years. Mm. <laughs> it's an emergency for a very short period of time. You should apply everything you've got, and then you should stop applying it mm. and, and get back to the normal functioning of things, because otherwise there's a, this danger of addiction that you talk about, and that's exactly what's happening. Well, is there the danger of addiction a result of, of policymakers being perhaps too focused on financial markets and not focused enough on the real, on the real economy. economy. Uh, it's yes. kind of the reverse of how it was when you were at the bank. I think there's something in that. Um, I think, though, as well, there's just a tendency in the introduction of new levers. We had so at this initial monetary policy forum, two of the participants, the panelists, were Charles Goodhart and Deanne Julius, both of whom were external members of the MPC. 
initially. And uh, they had a really cool little argument about QE at that time. So Now, that's one hell of a sentence which I've never heard before. <laughs> a, a cool little argument about QE. Well, here Go on, you want to hear it? So here Deanne's it yeah. line was, I'm very concerned about QE. I'm very concerned about the introduction of allowing central banks to use this tool and arguing for it. And the reason I'm concerned is it seems to me a bit like having an affair. It's very easy to get into, but very difficult to get out of but while retaining any dignity. And um, a nice comment, I thought, nice way of putting it. And uh, Charles Goodhart responded by saying, ah, Deanne, you've been having the wrong kind of affairs. You you just turn it off. And uh, well, here we are, right? Mm, We have not turned it off. That was in 2009, we're now standing in 2022. We have not turned it off. And uh, the financial markets are like a jilted lover. Correct, and Uh, can't be got rid of. There's too much attachment, too much sentimental attachment as it were, to pursue that analogy, Mm -hmm. to the markets. And I think the introduction of that tool is playing out still today, actually, in the UK right now. Mm -hmm. Ever since 2009, Mm -hmm. the markets have felt they're really in the policymaking environment. They have a key Mm -hmm. role in influencing policy. A lot is talked about the markets as though they're one homogeneous entity. They're not. They're loads, millions of people making decisions around the world. Mm -hmm. And yet, those millions of people can behave like a crowd, can behave like a mob does in some circumstances, and can have a what appears to be a unified voice that wants to achieve a certain outcome. And the markets have sure used that voice since 2009, time and again, to push policymakers into policies that they otherwise would not have adopted. Mm -hmm. That was true with the taper tantrum back in the day with the Fed tightening in 2015 and thereabouts that was reversed as a consequence of market behaviour. And it's true over the last month or two Mm -hmm. in the UK with the Treasury trying to announce a fiscal loosening, the market saying, uh uh, mm-hmm. no. So, to, to be clear, we're recording in, in October 2022, and we've just witnessed one of the largest sort of market freakouts at the long end of the UK gilt market. Yeah. And do you think that that is all a symptom of this unusual monetary policy? I think it's, it's the door was opened to that role for the markets by the unusual monetary policy that was specifically aimed at a different kind of leverage over market prices than had previously been applied. So the leverage before was all about you manage the short end of the yield curve by back changing bank rate and let the long end do its thing, let the markets do its thing and tell you how they're thinking about things. And then QE said, we're also going to try and control and manipulate the long end. Um, not just mm-hmm. the short end. And there was good reasoning for that, right? To just dwell on that. The short end could be brought down to naught, what's known as the zero lower bound, you may have heard about. Mm-hmm. It means you can't go below naught, or far below anyway, in nominal interest rates. And at that time, the judgment was we needed to go far below naught to create enough of a demand stimulus to get the economy back on its feet, but we couldn't. So what do we do instead? What we do instead is we've also pushed down on the long end, which is also stimulative. And that process was had some justification. But I agree with you that the impacts of that long end manipulation on the real economy were very, very slight. They were very evident in asset prices, but not in outcomes like growth or inflation or anything like that, at least not until uh, now. We're going to come back <coughs> to now because I do want to talk about now. But I mean, is there a broader point here? on policymakers' power. And you could argue that 
I mean, a lot of market participants congratulate policymakers for keeping on inflation under control, mm-hmm. you know, probably for 30 years. Mm-hmm. However, there are some pretty entrenched structural reasons for disinflation, namely debt, demography, globalization, technology. You know, these are all kind of structural drivers pushing down on prices, which have kind of allowed policymakers to expand to be as lax as they have been, Mm -hmm. both on the monetary and fiscal side. Mm -hmm. Is there a danger that we give them too much credit for the last 30 years and probably not enough credit in the short term? In which short term? Right now? Yeah, right now. (laughs) Well, we'll come back to right now. Uh, For the last 30 years, I agree with that sentiment completely. I think uh, globalisation, as you allude to, just to scroll back the period of time when I was in the Bank of England, Mervyn King's approach to that would have been, I'm characterising this, so Mervyn, if you're listening, give me a call, tell me I'm wrong, but it would have been what you're describing are price level effects that emerge from more increased trade around the world, from the impact of China, for example, and dragging down the price prevailing price level of goods, etc. Um, price level effects have nothing to do with the inflationary process in the medium term. This was Mervyn, the Mervyn King received wisdom. The thing that dictates that is monetary policy, mm-hmm. and that uh, we have control over our own monetary policy. So don't go blaming inflation outcomes beyond a year or two on imported factors from mm-hmm. China or from anywhere else that's to do with our own monetary policy. That's all it's ever to do with. That's the prevailing wisdom mm-hmm. from Mervyn circa 97, I would say. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was right. I think uh, that actually the stories to do with China especially were a big factor in dragging down global inflationary pressure for a period like a decade or more, and perhaps still are, although China is an interesting case in its own right and has passed, well past the peak of its effect in that respect and of dragging down global prices. And I can talk at length about that, but probably mm-hmm. not here. I urge our listeners to, to get in touch with Fan because <laughs> you've written an awful lot on it. Yeah, yeah. we have indeed, yeah. And... Uh, Very happy to talk about that. But certainly the period from China's accession to the World Trade Organization in 2001 and for the subsequent, I don't know, five to 10 years up in the run-up to the financial crisis was a period when we were all, all around the world importing deflation from China. And that was overlaid on whatever the domestically generated inflationary picture was and dragged down inflation around the world and allowed us to think that oh, we must have achieved something, huh? The productivity must be stronger because, look, we're running really loose monetary and fiscal policy, and yet we're not observing any inflationary pressure. We've achieved a miracle, huh? We've abolished boom and bust uh, and Gordon Brown Brown in those days. Thanks to what? Thanks to light-touch regulation of the banking industry. Thanks to the genius of independent monetary policy. And he felt that the Labour government at that time felt it was okay to be running a government deficit in a boom in the run-up to the financial crisis. The financial crisis was coming, of course, but they were running a deficit in a very strong economy, which is kind of the uh, um, moment for any government is fine to run a deficit during a recession, and you absolutely should. But during a boom, you should be putting fixing the roof and, and and so on. Anyway, they didn't. And they felt that that was justified because if we were doing something wrong, we'd see the outcome in inflation. We didn't. And I agree that was a misdiagnosis. And the deflationary pressure was coming from elsewhere. It was coming from the other factors you mentioned, aging demographics and so on, and China. It wasn't just um, deflation that we were importing from China. It was also credit and uh, 
the analogy. Can I go with an analogy here? Of course you can. <laughs> that I've used for our clients on this is um, imagine you're we're sitting in Piccadilly. Imagine you're walking down Bond Street and uh, on the hunt for a Rolex watch, mm-hmm. for example. This has never been. I my, know the feeling. I know the feeling. This has never been my case. <laughs> and somebody approaches you in the street and uh, they have a Rolex watch and they can demonstrate with 100% guarantee that it's the real thing, it's genuine. So there's no doubt about that for the sake of this thought experiment. And they'll sell it to you for a quarter of the price of the one that's in the shop right there, the same model. Do you buy it? Sure. Who wins out of that transaction? You do. You've got the real thing for a quarter of the price of of the thing that's available in the shop. What if that same guy says to you, oh, and by the way, I'll lend you the money to buy this off me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the rate I'll charge on that loan is a quarter of the interest rate that you get from that bank right there. And it's the, the real thing. Again, all the loan guarantees are in place, everything like that. So do you take the loan? Mm-hmm. Sure you do, mm-hmm. right? And then um, uh, who wins? You do, right? You've got a, a Rolex that's the real thing for a quarter of the price, and you've got a loan for a quarter of the interest rate that you would otherwise pay. Now, repeat that game and repeat it N times. And it's not just Rolex. This is everything that's for sale on that street. You will find 10 years later, all the shops are shut. There are no banks because all of the lending and all of the selling is being done by that guy. That guy in this analogy is China, that's Mm -hmm. that's coming in and bidding down not just the price of goods for sale in in this country or advanced economies, but also the price of credit. And um, Mm -hmm. it turns out at the end of that process, we will be left with a very high burden of debt and an awful lot of cheap goods that we've imported from Mm -hmm. China. And that's exactly where we have been left. And uh, that build-up of debt and of cheap credit wasn't quite person-to-person mm-hmm. in the way I've described the analogy. It flowed through the banking system and it flowed into asset prices and it flowed into house prices, etc. And we were left with very high asset prices mm-hmm. and very high mountains of debt. And that was the prelude to the financial crisis. And mm-hmm. it all China played a key role in building that. But it's also accommodated and enthusiastically encouraged by our own policymakers. Mm. It's very interesting. And it's a slightly worrying thought, given, and let's bring it up to date, you know, we're now at an era of over 10% inflation in the UK, yeah. last print, higher interest rates. If you were sitting at the Bank of England now, what would you be advising? <laughs> I'd be advising, can we at least think about a framework, an analytical framework for explaining to ourselves, to the British public, to markets, what are the things that drive inflation, for example. There is no such framework that I'm aware of. Uh, These things used to be called, well, and were models, and the the bank had a model uh, when I was there called the medium-term forecasting model, built in part by Shamik Dar, who's one of the founders of Fathom. And that's the model that I used while I was there. Models are always wrong. Let's be clear about that. There's no one model to rule them all. No such thing exists, nor will it ever. But to say, therefore, that I should abandon frameworks altogether and just make policy on the on the fly without any guiding framework, well, that works when you're not doing anything with policy, huh? which was the, the mm. characteristic scenario for the 10 years post-GFC and, and then through the COVID period, there wasn't many, weren't many models mm. that would help you with the impact of COVID. It's unprecedented. Huh? Mm. But now here we are again and we're in a world a bit like the pre-GFC world where suddenly inflation 
is doing something and the yield curve is moving and moving a lot and uh, the entanglement of fiscal and monetary policy is problematic. Uh, back in the day, again, when I was at the bank, there were very clear lines of demarcation between monetary policy on the one hand, which is the province of the Bank of England, mm -hmm. and fiscal policy, which is the province of the Treasury. So monetary policy being the the, the price of money, the setting of interest rates, yeah. etc. Fiscal policy being um, how much taxes spend, mm -hmm. how much the government is taxing exactly. spending. So where do you think this merge happened? So um, unconventional monetary policy was the first step to the merger. And again, Charles Goodhart, I'm quoting, said, introduction of QE drove a coach and horses through the demarcation between uh, monetary and fiscal policy. Mm -hmm. and the Bank of England's response at the time in, in, and other central banks was, no, it didn't. Uh, we're still observing the demarcation lines. And the uh, reasoning there was QE was the Bank of England printing money to buy government bonds from the market. That was their defence. So as long as we're only buying it at prices mm -hmm. that the market wants, we're not interfering with fiscal policy. The fact was, though, that through the whole period of QE, the net fiscal loosening, the, so the difference between tax and spend that was announced by the government and the change in that over time had an uncanny resemblance to the amount of new QE mm. that was produced each time. It was almost pound for pound. Mm. So they were printing money and spending it. So the government was spending it mm -hmm. uh, and the Bank of England was buying, the government borrows that's mm -hmm. what issuing debt is. So mm -hmm. the government issues government bonds. Somebody has to buy those bonds. Mm -hmm. But if that somebody is a branch of the government, which is the Bank mm -hmm. of England, and then you've got this strange mm -hmm. loop going on. And the bank's defence was, oh, but we're not buying it from the Treasury. We're buying it from the markets. Yeah. The markets, first of all, have to yeah. buy it. Yeah. And that was the case with QE initially. That was blown away in the COVID period. The, the Bank of England just bought it directly from yeah. the government. See, I thought, I seem to remember when I was younger, learning about the Bank of England, and the Bank of England's role was the lender of last resort, not the buyer of first resort. <laughs> Indeed. And it's kind of flipped. Yeah. So how do we get out of it, Eric? How do we get out of it? Um, well, perversely, and weirdly enough, the current crisis might present a route out. And mm. this, I have to say, is an unpopular opinion at the moment. And I, I've tried it on with various of our clients over the last few days. But We're a broad church of opinion. <laughs> don't mind. Roll with it. Mm. Uh, and this isn't how I would have done it if I were designing policy and so on. But nevertheless, the route out of the malaise of the last 10, 15 years is a route that involves a shift to permanently higher interest rates and permanently higher inflation and an upward sloping yield curve in general circumstances, apart from in recessionary environment. How do you get to that scenario? Well, there's various routes, but one of them would have been to create deliberately a burst of much higher inflation and accommodate it for a while until it got embedded in expectations. And then you have to move rates and you have to keep them higher. And I'll come back to why I want higher rates in a minute. But it turns out that that's sort of what's happened in the UK, that by hook or by crook or by design or by accident, I'm sure it's by accident, we have shifted to a higher rate, higher inflation environment, probably that's going to persist for a while. And there's a sense in which that's a good thing. There's a lot of pain involved getting there, and the pain was avoidable through better planning. But here we are, and I feel like there's an opportunity if we could have a joined-up government, joined-up policy framework to move to an environment that points to a better future 
realistically in the UK, but we're not taking it at the moment, has mm-hmm. to be said. So why a higher rate? I want to be clear on yeah, the definition sure. there, because higher rates, so higher inflation, <clears> higher <throat> interest rates, surely the, the key question is the relationship between the two. So in other words, what the real interest Absolutely. rate is, because we've been at negative real rates for a long, long time. <clears throat> and with a higher inflation, we're kind of still at negative real rates. We certainly are. And if you roll that forward, what you get to is a, a, a situation of financial repression, yeah. you know, where savers lose out over the long term. It's like yeah. death by a thousand cuts. Correct. Which, weirdly, politically, probably could work. Indeed. Because it's very difficult to explain that to general population. It certainly is. So is that the, is that the answer? So uh, financial repression is one way, and that's the way. So if, if we, this is going back a long way now, but uh, post-World War II, the UK had uh, total debt in the economy as a share of GDP is the order of 250, 260% of GDP, total debt. That's government and private together. Scrolling forward to now, total debt in the UK economy as a share of GDP is 250, 260%, numbers like that. The composition is different. So about 95% of that is government and the remainder is private. So that back before World War II, there was very little private credit essentially in the UK economy. But post-World War II, and especially post-Margaret Thatcher, there was a huge build-up of private credit that was accelerated during the period after the GFC. Private credit is now very large in the UK, and together those two things are at World War levels. So the previous occasions when total debt has been that high is right after World War I, right after World War II, and now. And uh, uh, what happens in that context? Well, also GFC. GFC was another example. The solution to that was posited by the greatest economist of them all, which was Keynes, in my opinion, who wrote the just brilliant piece, if you're a budding economist, read this, which is The Economic Consequences of the Peace, written by Keynes in 1921. And it was about the impact of the buildup of cross-border debt as a consequence of the, the war and the Treaty of Versailles. And he pointed to that, Keynes did at that time, saying, These paper shackles, he described them, will commit us to a period of depression and battling about pointless things, these cross-border obligations, that will ultimately act like a millstone around the economy and will lead to a conflagration if they're not dealt with. And what he called for was an even-tempered, managed bonfire of those debt obligations. So we sit down in a room and just burn them, Mm -hmm. just burn them. And there'll be some that's got to be done without severe injustice being done to anybody. Mm -hmm. Uh, But somehow or other, we've got to unravel those high debt levels because if we don't, Mm -hmm. the conflagration that will ensue will be far worse than that bonfire would be. Mm -hmm. And um, he was basically calling World War II right after World War I correctly mm-hmm. and for the right reason. Mm-hmm. And um, and he spent the remainder of his life, essentially, trying to persuade the world of the truth of that mm-hmm. set of remarks and failing until Roosevelt, and uh, he was basically trying to get people off the goals. Anyway, this is not mm-hmm. old stuff. Yeah. But um, the medicine for too much debt is to reduce debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to take on too <laughs> not, more debt. <laughs> correct. Which, interestingly, is the medicine that we took, correct. decided to take, and which has proved highly addictive. Yeah. I want to turn then to the fiscal side. You've, you've given your solution to the monetary side. If yeah. you were sitting in the Cabinet Office, what would you be saying? Um, I'd be saying that... The world that we're in, where fiscal policy 
and I would say monetary policy, the lines are blurred between the two, but fiscal anyway, is being dictated to us by the markets, is totally unsatisfactory and undemocratic, and we shouldn't accept that outcome. The first thing to do to prevent that from being the case is to restore some semblance of confidence in markets, something about credibility, about sustainability of the fiscal position. Uh, we're going to need to do that, but we're going to need to not stop there. It's not democratic to be told by the markets what we should be doing with fiscal policy. That's not the right outcome. That should be the province of government. It reminds me, I'm going to do another analogy. No, go ahead. Uh, I like these Which is that in my own business, I think about... Uh, when things are difficult or not going well or a project is not going well, how much leeway do I actually have as the boss of a company to change that outcome? And it turns out very little. Maybe, you know, I've got leeway like 5 or 10% with individual members of staff to change their behaviour by that sort of margin. And if I try too hard, if I press too hard, they'll break, they'll leave, and I will fail to deliver to the client. So you have to... Um, I think it's in the Tao Te Ching uh, idea, the sage, the wise person rules, uh, governs as you would cook a small fish, you know, very gently, very mm. gently. And uh, that's all you've really got. You've got very small scope, wiggle room as a boss or as a prime minister to achieve what you want. You have to be very careful with it. And what, mm. we've, what they've just done mm. is pedal to the metal and they've broken it. They've gone and broken it. And well, it's interesting. I think just to extend that metaphor, they've done pedal to the metal yeah. on the fiscal side. Yeah. Meanwhile, the monetary side is trying to do pedal to the metal on yeah. the brake. Yeah, on the uh, brake. We've done the accelerator <laughs> the brake. Exactly, yeah. Which, if you're a very clever Formula One driver, you can do both. <laughs> but, but most of us... I don't know if our prime minister is just a clever <laughs> no, I wouldn't have Formula thought so. One driver. So I would say... Get back a sense of credibility and stability, which arguably is exactly what Jeremy Hunt is doing. But don't stop there. Try to move on to the growth agenda, the prevailing growth rates that the UK would achieve year on year, on average, before the great financial crisis, were numbers like one and a half, two percent, maybe two and a half, in that sort of range, real GDP growth. Post-financial crisis, until COVID, that number fell to one to one and a half percent. Post-COVID, it's naught. Mm. It's naught. We're overheating with growth at naught. It's ridiculous, right? If you run that forward for 10, 15, 20 years, the cost of that change is absolutely colossal. Mm. Anything you can do to reverse that or bring back a better growth rate, the pays for itself within five years and within 50 years it's paid for itself over and over and over mm -hmm. and over well let's uh, think of bad examples yeah. because to me it seems like there has been a lot of of investment in inverted commas i hate it when the government's called talk about investment when it's spending yeah but you've seen a lot of investment in sort of non-productive assets <laughs> right meanwhile they're not enough perhaps in productive assets yeah. and so i suppose the question is how does one gear the government to make sure that they are focusing more on productivity rather than frivolity? Well, I mean, I wish I knew the answer to that, but uh, there's a bunch of things that are pretty well known and pretty well accepted among the economics community. We're well-known economists for arguing with each other, and we certainly do that. But some things that there's a very wide span of agreement on. So, for example, this is actually controversial as a new set of figures out, but as the pre-set of figures were, um, the UK spends about 1.7% of its GDP on research and development a year. And that contrasts with our peers, Germany, France, for example, who spend more like 
two and a half to three percent of their GDP, and the US that spends three and a half, that kind of thing. And we wonder why they're more productive than we are. Well, that's one reason. And there's really good evidence in the mm-hmm. literature for that. Um, secondly, education. How well are people educated in the UK? My perception of that is that elite education in the UK is brilliant. It's like world-leading, the elite institutions mm-hmm. that we have here are really, really good. But for the rest of the people, which is the vast majority, is very poor. So there's this yawning gap of regular education for most people, which is just not up to the standards of France, Germany, the US, Italy, Japan, never mind the other Asian economies. And we can clearly do better on those fronts. There's a bunch of other things that people talk about. Openness to trade, I think that's really important, which was mm-hmm. hurt by Brexit, obviously not permanently, but for a period of time. Openness to flows of immigration, which supports productivity. Again, almost all economists will agree that immigration is good for productivity. Mm -hmm. You'll find almost no economist out there who would argue the contrary to that. Mm. We've reversed a lot Mm -hmm. of those things recently, hopefully not permanently, but for a period anyway. And those are bad things. And the last piece in the jigsaw, is the prevailing rate environment, which is the thing I mm-hmm. come back, keep coming back to. Why does that matter? Why is it that low rates create low productivity? And the answer to that goes to famous economist Joseph Schumpeter back in the day, who talked about a concept that, of creative destruction. Um, this is why economists don't get invited to parties. <laughs> and so on, is we like this concept, or at least I do, which is the idea that You need a certain amount of churn in an economy of companies, businesses falling by the wayside and and being killed in order to make room for new, more productive uh, activities. And uh, that churn is guaranteed if you have an interest rate, prevailing interest rate like 5 or 6%. But if you have a prevailing interest rate like naught, it's not guaranteed at all. You don't mm-hmm. get it. And mm-hmm. what you get instead is the growth of inverted commas zombie companies mm-hmm. who have very saddled with very high levels of debt. And their solution to staying in business for another year is to accrue more debt. Mm-hmm. Like Japan. Like Japan. Exactly like Japan. And Japan's been in that world for 25, 30 years. Mm-hmm. And we're in it. We've been in it for 10 now. Mm-hmm. And uh, that world where you're encouraging the growth of zombies. Mm-hmm. And if you're familiar with the zombie genre of movies, I'm <laughs> familiar with zombies. <laughs> quite. Mm-hmm. Zombies are not um, stay at home people. They like right. to get out up yeah, and yeah. about and meet people, right? <laughs> and uh, uh, zombies is not a stable scenario to just have them sat at home watching TV. They're going <laughs> to spread. The economy is going to become more and more zombified. And so it's, I think, super important to set out on a mission as government Mm -hmm. to think about all the factors that contribute to productivity growth, which include R&D, education, trade, immigration, flows of finance, and slaying the zombies in your own economy through returning to a higher rate inflation environment mm-hmm. than, than previously prevailed. And um, I'd be sketching that strategy now mm-hmm. if I were there. Yeah, well, I agree. And I think we could probably do with a bit of creative destruction uh, at the political level as well. Now, I want to turn to our final question, Eric. Um, uh, I want you just to cast your mind back to when you were sort of cutting your teeth early on in your career and can think of any bits of advice that you were given back then, which you really, really valued. So this brings to mind a couple of ideas, one of which was advice from my mum when I went to Oxford. I was from a comprehensive school in Colchester. I didn't really know 
what Oxford was going to be like. I'd, I'd sort of seen bits of Brideshead revisited and that kind of thing and uh, thought it was going to be like that and um, asked my mum how to cope with this. And she said, well, you should go in curious, open and uh, embrace that process because in your life you will find there are very few circumstances when you're surrounded by people intelligent curious people who are interested in the same things you are and are ready to talk about them in most fields of disciplines you don't get that opportunity very often so embrace it when you do and that was such good advice and I took it on and loved my experience there and have carried that with me ever since and thought I don't want the other type of world I've the type of world where people are not intellectually curious and are not discussing things freely and openly. It's just profoundly boring and I'm not interested in it. So I've always, in my career, when choices have been offered to me, and they have on various occasions, and this will happen to most people, I can only say from my own perspective, I'm not calling a right or wrong here, but a choice that has been offered to me, I would say four or five times, which is choose the money or choose the interesting thing. I've always chosen the interesting thing, and that I don't regret. There's many ways I could have made more money than I've made, but they would have been boring. So I've always gone the interesting route, and and that's very much the spirit that we're trying to Mm -hmm. create and fathom is is that exact spirit of openness, collegiateness, Mm -hmm. and free thinking and so on. Actually, one of my bosses, I shan't name him, when I was at the Bank of England, I had an appraisal within one year that wasn't wasn't great, and... um, he was like, uh, the thing about you, Eric, is you're a free thinker. And I was, oh, thank you. I said, that's not a compliment. You're, you're, aware, you're aware of the institution you work in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that a lot. So be curious mm-hmm. and choose the interesting routes. Yeah. It's sage advice, Eric. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eric, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Wine Desk podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Eric Britton from Fathom Consultancy. If you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, why not like us, subscribe to us, and let your friends and colleagues know. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.